Good morning. How is everyone this morning? You guys ready to get into the Word together? All right. We are in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. If you remember, we finished Genesis last week, and we are beginning a new study. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, so we're going to do a a brief introduction, and we're going to tackle chapter 1 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 17, and we'll get into it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab and Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot uh, Shetiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot um, Abayud, Abayud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot uh, Eliud, Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot uh, Mathen, and Mathen begot Jacob. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And so, Lord, would you... Honor the reading of your word this morning. Lord, would you honor the study of your word? Lord, as we look into these things, we invite you in this place, God. God, that you would have your way, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit here. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, hearts to receive. Lord, minds to understand. Lord, what you are speaking to us. So, Lord, we just want to say this morning that we love you. Lord, we're eager to hear from you. So would you have your way again, Lord, in this place. Be high and lifted up here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as we mentioned, we're in the 
the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at some, some interesting things this morning as we consider this, this genealogy of Jesus. You know, and, and I've, I've titled this message, A Dual Heritage, because we're going to see this morning, right, that, that Jesus has two different heritages that we see here, right? We see his earthly heritage, and we're going to see his spiritual heritage. So as we get into this gospel, there's a couple things that we need to stop and, and consider anytime we come to a new book, you know, first of which is, is who wrote the book, right? Who is the author of this book? And you know, we have a lot of help here because it's typically in big, bold letters on the top of the page, right, that Matthew, right, is our author, right, formerly called Levi, one of the disciples of Jesus, the former tax collector, the man that, that Jesus called out and said, follow me, right, and that he left everything behind, his life of, of wealth, to follow Jesus. And so he gives us here an account of the things that, that he experienced following Jesus and and his, his life following after his, his Lord and his Savior. And so we also not just consider who wrote the book, but who is he writing the book to, right? Who is his audience? You know, we're, we're going to learn as we work through this book that, that Matthew's audience is largely a, a Jewish audience, right? That he is writing to Jewish believers, um, and so, considering the fact that he's, he's writing this, this gospel to, to Jews, we also have to consider when, right? When was the book written? Most scholars believe that, that the gospel of Matthew was, was written early. Um, you know, if you read and you study, you know, you're going to get all kinds of different dates thrown out there. Um, typically anywhere between 45 A.D. and 65 A.D., and everybody's pretty much unanimous that it was written before 70 A.D., before the destruction of the temple by Titus Vespasian. Um, but given the fact that, that his audience is very Jewish and that the, the things he's writing about is very Jewish, it's likely that it supports an early date, probably closer to, to 45, 50 A.D., um, where the church, the early church, was mainly uh, Jewish. Um, and so we, we hold to typically an, an early date for the, the, the writing of the gospel. You know, and then we also want to consider why. Why is this gospel so important? I mean, after all, there are four of them, right? I mean, doesn't a lot of the information just kind of seem redundant and, and a lot of things seem to be repeated? So, so why do we need... Four Gospels. Why is Matthew's Gospel so important? And by extension, the other the other three Gospels so important. Well, it's because these four Gospels round out the totality in the nature of Jesus Christ, right? And that each of these Gospels paint and portray Jesus in slightly a different way, showing that Jesus had four different ways in which he is, he is presented. So Matthew, right, this gospel, as we work through this, we're going to see that, that Matthew is written to the Jews, and he's going to present Jesus as the king. He's going to present Jesus as the king, and it's going to speak of his royalty. And as we go through this genealogy, as we look at this 
earthly heritage of Jesus, we're going to see the royal line that Jesus is a part of. Whereas when we come and look at Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel is written to the Romans, and he presents Jesus as a servant. And it speaks of Jesus' humility. Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel is, is written to the Greeks. He presents Jesus as a man. It speaks of Jesus' Jesus's humanity. Right? In the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, written much, much later, right? John's gospel is written to the world. And John's gospel presents Jesus as God. And it speaks of Jesus' divinity. So we have Jesus' royalty, we have his humility. We have his humanity and we have his divinity. And so as we work through this gospel of Matthew, we're going to be focusing on the king, Jesus' royalty. You know, and all four of these gospels portray Jesus in just a slightly different way. And if you enjoy studying and if you want some extra credit this morning, for some extra credit study, you can go and study these four gospels and see how these four Gospels relate to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, and Revelation verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. There's a really, really neat picture that's painted there, again, in Ezekiel 1, 10 and Revelation 4, 7, and how these four Gospels and these four representations of Jesus are compared to those two passages. So I'll leave that for you guys to study and to get into. Um, it is fascinating. Um, But we have a lot of material to get through this morning, so if you are a note-taker, we're going to be looking at two main things this morning. Don't get too excited. There's a lot of sub-points underneath that. (laughs) But two main points. The first thing we're going to be looking at is Jesus' earthly heritage, and we see Jesus' earthly heritage in verses 1 through 17. And just to put it ahead of you, the second thing we're going to look at this morning, as I've already mentioned, is Jesus' divine heritage. His divine heritage, which we see in verses 18 through 25. So, again, Matthew chapter 1 can be divided into these two sections, right? Earthly heritage and divine heritage. And when we consider Jesus' earthly heritage, there are six things told you there was a lot of subpoints. There are six things that I think are of note about Jesus' earthly heritage. The first of which is that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So Matthew comes right out starting this gospel with a messianic title, the Son of David. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of David. Right? And, as, and as we're looking ahead to, to Christmas on Friday, right, a familiar passage that we, we all know well, especially during the Christmas season, right, is Isaiah 9. Right, chapter uh, ver- chapter nine, verses six and excuse me, six and seven. Right, and we, we all know the verse. Right, for unto us 
a child is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And I want to key in here for just a moment on those two phrases. Right? A son is given, a child is born. Again, because the son of David is a messianic title. It's used 16 times in the New Testament, 10 times in this gospel alone. Ten times Matthew refers to Jesus, the son of David. And looking at this, uh, this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah gives us these two kind of designations, right? That a child is born and that a son is given, both in reference to Jesus, both in reference to the Messiah, and they refer to his two natures or his two heritages that, he, that we see here in chapter 1 of Matthew, right? Matthew's gospel gives us a genealogy and a genealogy that goes through the royal line of Solomon. Through Solomon, down through Rehoboam, and ultimately we're going to see it goes through an individual named Jeconiah. And we're going to see momentarily that this becomes a problem due to a blood curse that is given in Jeremiah chapter 22. Whereas in Luke's gospel, there is another genealogy. In chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, we have another genealogy of Jesus. But this genealogy follows Mary's bloodline back to David, but instead of going through the line of Solomon, it goes through David's other son, Nathan. And so Jesus has connections to King David from both Mary and Joseph. But Joseph's line goes through Solomon. Mary's line goes through Nathan back to David. And we're going to see this morning that this is significant. So why bring up Isaiah 9? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's because Matthew is giving us Joseph's lineage, the son that is given. Right? He is not born to Joseph. He is given to Joseph. Jesus, we're going to learn, doesn't carry any of Joseph's blood, does he? Right? Because of the virgin birth of Mary. He only has Mary's bloodline. So the son that is given is Luke's, I'm sorry, is, is Matthew's genealogy through Joseph's line. The child that is born is Luke chapter 3. Mary's genealogy. And this is important because the, the Messiah, right, is to sit on the throne of David. We see that here in Isaiah 9, right? There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment. You see, the Messiah is to sit on the throne of David, and it's important that he sits on the throne of David forever. We learn this in, 
In 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 and 13, Paul says it in Romans 1, 3, right, that he will be born of the seed of David. So Jesus is the son of David. But he's not only the son of David. The second thing we learn about Jesus' earthly heritage is that he is also the son of Abraham. You see, Matthew's genealogy doesn't stop with David, right? Matthew's genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham. And Matthew shows and proves that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Look at verse 1 again, right? The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we just studied these things, did we not? And what I love about the fact that we're going from Genesis, the beginning of the Old Testament, to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, is that the book of Matthew shows this wonderful bridge between the two. You know, and in, and in Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3, God speaks to Abraham. He says, Get out of your own country, from your own family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. God, speaking to Abraham, says, From you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God reiterates this in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. He says, In your seed, all the nations, all nations, Jewish and Greek, Jewish, I'm sorry, Jewish and Gentile, all the nations will be blessed of the earth because you have obeyed my voice. And in case it's not clear enough, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed. And if you, if you look in Galatians 3, uh, 3.16, that word seed is capitalized, capital S. Right? Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. To your seed, who is Christ. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see what Matthew is doing here? Matthew is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who fulfills the promises of God. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. The third thing of note in Jesus' earthly heritage, not only is he the son of David, not only is he the son of Abraham, but he is of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. Look at verse 2. So Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. We remember, again, from studying Genesis, that Jacob, his name means heel catcher, means deceiver, and that in Genesis 32, right, God changes his name after he wrestles with God. God changes Jacob's name from deceiver to Israel, governed by God. And that Jacob had 12 sons, right? And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah, who is mentioned here, 
right? Judah was the fourth son of Leah. And if, and if you remember from last week, right, in Genesis chapter 49, that Jacob began to, to bless his 12 sons. And something unique happens when he gets to, to verse 8, when he gets to his son Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Jacob saying to Judah, You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. His, his, uh, he bows down. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than snow. As Jacob is pouring out blessing, upon his sons, and he gets to Judah, and he says things to Judah like, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. He says things like, like Judah, you are whom your brothers shall praise, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You will conquer your enemies. Your brothers will praise you. In fact, Judah's name means praise. We learned this just last week. Binding his donkey and his, and his donkey's colt. Does it sound familiar to, I don't know, Zechariah 9, 9 and maybe Jesus' triumphal entry? This blessing from Jacob is a clear reference to the Messiah. The one who will rule, the one who will reign, the one who will come through the line of Judah. And Matthew here is pointing out that Jesus comes through not just the line of David, not just the line of Abraham, but he comes through the... I mean, Jacob had 12 sons. But Jesus comes down through Judah. Well, let's come to the fourth thing we, we learn about Jesus' earthly heritage. The fourth thing that we learn about his heritage is that it involves women. It involves women. Five in total that we see here in our text. And I know this might sound kind of strange. Of course, his... His heritage involves women. It must involve women. But see, what we need to, what's important for us to note is that Jewish genealogical records never included women. It always went down the male side. You see, for, for Jewish genealogical records, <clears throat> that you received your status, you received your royalty, you received your namesake from your father. Right? This is still something in, in, in a lesser respect respect that we practice today, right? When we get married, typically, right, our wives take our names, right? And it's our name, it's the male's namesake that gets carried on. And so it's very, very rare going through a Jewish genealogical record to see a woman's name mentioned because it was, it was the father's line that was important to them. But in Jesus's heritage, we see five women mentioned. And I think it's significant to note the women that are mentioned. 
Side note, today, if you are Jewish and you want to become an Israeli citizen, right, in 1950, when, when Israel became a nation again, right, they developed this law called the, um, um, the Law of Return, right, basically opening their doors saying that if you are Jewish and you can prove your Jewish heritage, that you can Im- immediately go to Israel and become an Israeli citizen, but today, if you want to become an Israeli citizen under the law of return, you have to prove your heritage through your mother, and specifically through your grandmother, right? Because they know today that really your bloodlines comes from your mother. So Matthew includes these five women. These five women, four by name, one who is inferred. So let's look at these five real quick. The first one we see in verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. So the first the first woman that is mentioned is this woman Tamar. And again, this is what I love about as we come into Matthew that it bridges so well with the book we just studied right? Genesis, right? Because it wasn't all that long ago. It was just a couple weeks ago we studied this story, did we not, about Judah and Tamar, right? That Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, right? And if we remember, right, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, right? Ur took a Canaanite wife named Tamar, right? It says that Ur was, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and that he was killed. And he was killed without having a son. And so that enacted something called the Leverite marriage. In other words, he, he died without an heir, without someone to carry his namesake because that was important. So the Leverite marriage basically said that the next brother in line would marry his brother's wife and produce an heir for him so that his namesake could continue. Right? But if we remember correctly, and if you want to Go back, you can study this in Genesis chapter 38, but Onan didn't want to do that. And we don't know exactly why. Maybe he didn't like Tamar. Maybe he didn't like the fact that she was um, a Canaanite. But Onan didn't want to do it. And so Onan is killed. So then that responsibility, responsibility fell to Shelah. But, Judah was like, well, no, Tamar, you've already kind of had issues with my first two sons, and I don't know how I feel about giving you my third. So he comes up with this thing, says, well, he's kind of young. Why don't we wait until he grows up and gets a little bit older? Then you can marry Shelah. Well, Tamar, realizing that Judah's not going to do this, decides she's going to take matters into her own hands and handle this herself. Right, and there was this trip that Judah would always take up to Temna, knowing that he makes this trip, that Tamar then dresses as a harlot. She goes and waits for him, entices Judah. They start to discuss terms. They settle on the price of a goat. And Judah says, well, I don't, I don't have the goat on me, um, but I can promise payment. You can just take my, my cord and my signet ring and my staff as collateral, and then I can come back and I can, I can pay you later with this goat. 
And then in the fullness of time, someone comes to Judah and tells Judah, hey, uh, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's, uh, she's pregnant. She's played the harlot, and she's pregnant. And anybody remember what Judah said? Bring her out and let's burn her. So as you can imagine, Tamar, not a big fan of that idea, says, well, yeah, um, before you burn me, you should probably know that the father of my child, uh, these things belong to him, this cord and this staff and this signet ring. And obviously Judah quickly recognizing those items, because those items for, for, for us that would basically have been like he surrendered his driver's license, his social security card, and his credit card, right? All forms of identification. And what does Judah say? She is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Now, why do I bring these things up? Because though she played a harlot, though she deceived her father-in-law, though she was a Canaanite, yet she is here specifically pointed out and mentioned in the heritage, the lineage of Jesus Christ. Well, maybe it's an anomaly, right? Let's look at the second lady that we see in verse 5. We have Tamar and we have Rahab. Right in verse 5, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. If you go and study Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends these two spies into Jericho. Right? These two spies go into Jericho and to check things out, not wanting to arouse suspicion, not wanting to draw unwanted attention, they do what most travelers would do, right? They go to the, to the local hotel that was a hotel with benefits, basically, right? They go to the local prostitute's house, which was Rahab. So another Canaanite woman, and this one's not pretending to be a harlot. This one is, by profession, a harlot, a prostitute, Right? And so Rahab, this Canaanite, this Gentile prostitute, when the guards come looking for these two men that have come into the city, what does Rahab do? She tells the guards, oh, they left. They went to the gate of the city. If you hurry, you might be able to catch up to them. Meanwhile, she's got them hid on the roof. So not only is she a Canaanite prostitute, but she's a liar as well. But when those... those when those walls of Jericho came down, there was one piece of the wall that was still standing, right? One piece of the wall with a scarlet thread hanging out the window. It was Rahab's house. Why? Because she believed in the God of Israel, which is why she hid the spies in the first place. In fact, Rahab is in the hall of faith, right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. Listen, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made. If you've got that scarlet thread, God is loving. He is gracious. He is forgiving. 
And he wants you part of his family. And he doesn't care how it makes his heritage or his genealogy look. He wants you to be a part of him. Because Rahab had that scarlet thread. And I love that term, right? Because as we study the Old Testament, there's that scarlet thread of redemption woven through. It is the picture and person of Jesus Christ. And Rahab believed. And so here she is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, the third, the third lady we see is in that same verse, verse 5. It's Ruth. And we know the story, don't we? Beautiful, beautiful story, right? Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and that Obed begot Jesse. Ruth. Ruth is the great-grandmother to King David. And we know it's a beautiful story. If you haven't studied the book of Ruth, it is amazing. Boaz, the Kingsman Redeemer, and we don't have time to go into all that, but it is beautiful. But there is a problem. The problem is that Ruth is a Moabite. She's a Moabite. She might not be a prostitute or a harlot. She may not be pretending to be one. But the problem is that she is a Moabite. And in Deuteronomy, right, Deuteronomy tells us that the Israelites were not to intermingle or intermarry with the Moabites or the Ammonites. And can anybody tell me why? Anybody know why? Yeah? Yep. Yep. They weren't friends, were they? You know, it's interesting. Again, going back to Genesis chapter, you know, going back as far as to chapter 19, right? When, when Sodom and Gomorrah was getting destroyed, right? Who leaves the city? Right? It's Lot and his family. Right? And as they're fleeing from the city, right, someone turns around and looks. Lot's wife turns around and looks, and she becomes a pillar of salt. And the unfortunate thing is what happened next. Right? Lot's daughter, so devastated, so upset. The world is over. The cities are gone and destroyed. Our mother is gone. So what do they do? They get their father Lot drunk. And once he's drunk, they both go in and they sleep with him, and they both get pregnant and produce children. The oldest child gets pregnant and produces a son, and she names him Moab, who becomes the father of the Moabites. The second daughter, she produces a son, and he becomes the father of the Ammonites. And as we've already learned, right, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they don't get along with the nation of Israel. And so in Deuteronomy, they're told not to intermarry with these different nations. And here is Ruth, a Moabite. And she is the great-grandmother to King David, just three, just three generations removed, right? King David is, is on the throne, and his great-grandmother is a Moabite. I mean, are you seeing the grace that is within the heritage of Jesus Christ? Well, what about the fourth lady? This fourth, fourth woman who's not even named. They don't even write her name in. She's just inferred. 
right? In verse 6, and Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon, who by her, who had been the wife of Uriah, right? And it doesn't take a whole lot of research to know who we're talking about, right? The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. The mother of Solomon was Bathsheba. And though not named, it is clear from the text who Matthew is referring to. We know the story well, don't we? Right? David was looking out from his balcony with lust. He sees Bathsheba there. And after all, since he's king, he figured he'd take what he wants. So here is this woman, right, who had an adulterous relationship with the king. Right? King David ends up having Uriah killed because Uriah was a man of honor, a man of integrity. Right? When David brought him back from the front lines and and said, hey, why don't you come home and spend some time with your wife trying to cover up what he had done? But because Uriah was a man of integrity, wouldn't do it. Right? So then David sends him in the front lines basically to make sure he died at war. This is the story that's included in Jesus' heritage, his earthly heritage. I mean, I don't know about you, but this, this amazes me. It encourages me, gives me hope, right, that I can be included as well. And it doesn't matter my background. These are things that in a typical Jewish genealogical record, they'd want to kind of hide. Why would we point out Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba? Why would we point these women out when they're typically not even included in general? Like, we'll just, we'll just name the men. Well, don't worry, we'll get to them in a moment. They're not innocent either. But the fifth, the fifth woman that we see is listed in verse 16, and we definitely know who this is. Right? Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. The husband of Mary, who, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. We come to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I love the contrast here. Right? Because Mary's not a harlot. She's not playing a harlot. She's not a prostitute. She's not a Moabite. She's not an adulterer, although she might be referred to as one. Right? Mary is different. This sweet young girl that loves the Lord, is open to the things of the Lord, is listening to the Lord. Right? She has angels visiting her, that she has been chosen by the Lord to be used mightily for the kingdom, to bring forth the Messiah into the world. And notice it says, right, Jacob begot Joseph, but it doesn't say that Joseph begot Jesus, because he didn't, right? That Jesus is not a part of Joseph's bloodline. It's Mary, right? Joseph is just the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus. Jesus was born of Mary in the virgin birth, not of Joseph, Not of Joseph, because, I mean, it's important. It's important because of that curse that I mentioned earlier, right? And this brings us to the fifth thing of note 
in terms of Jesus' earthly heritage. And it's that his earthly heritage involves this person called Jeconiah. Look at verses 11 and 12. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot uh, Shiltiel, and Shiltiel begot Zerubbabel. So in verses 7 through 12, we have a list of kings. list of kings that were kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, most of which were evil. I mean, there are some bright spots like Hezekiah and Josiah and Jehoshaphat, but for the most part, most of these southern kings were evil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, you, you have kings like Manasseh, right? The worst king that ever reigned in Judah. And not, not only was he the worst king that they ever saw and ever had, but he had the longest reign out of all the kings as well. 51 years he reigned, yet listed in the genealogy of Jesus. But we come to this man, Jeconiah, mentioned in verses 11 and 12. And Jeconiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, God, speaking through Jeremiah, says this about Jeconiah. He says, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none, listen to this, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, prophesies that none of Jeconiah's descendants could ever sit on the throne of David. But wait a minute. Isn't Jesus a descendant of Jeconiah? Isn't he listed here in the genealogy of Jesus? And the amazing part again, is that Jesus does not share his blood. And this is why I wanted to make the distinction between these, these two heritages, right? Because Jesus is going to receive his royalty from his father, from his father, Joseph. But he doesn't share Joseph's blood. Right? We learn from Luke chapter 3, that Mary's bloodline goes through David, through his other son, Nathan, not Solomon. Right? Jeconiah's bloodline goes back to Solomon. Jesus' bloodline doesn't go through Jeconiah. So Jesus, the seed of David through Mary, but he has access to the royal line through his adoptive father, Joseph. Is that not amazing? Is that not just encouraging? God has it all figured out, right? He has it all figured out. And that encourages me, and hopefully it encourages you, because no matter what you have going on in life, no matter how stressful it may be, no matter the anxiety, no matter the struggles, no matter the heartache, no matter what it is, God has it figured out. He has it under control He is on the throne, and we don't have to worry about it. It also means that Jesus Christ is the only person who could have fulfilled the requirements of being the Messiah. He's the only one, and Matthew is proving it in this genealogy. Well, let's come to the sixth thing we learn about Jesus' heritage, his earthly heritage. 
Look at verse 17. We have this interesting thing where Mark, uh, <laughs> excuse me, where Matthew says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Then he says, From David to the captivity in Babylon are another 14 generations. And then from the captivity of Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So 14, 14, 14. So from Abraham to David, he says there's 14 generations there. And so from David to the Babylonian captivity, another 14. And then from that captivity to Jesus, another 14. Which if you're any good at math, right? Anybody know what 14 times 3 is? 42. And I'll save you the trouble, but if you go through name by name in this record here, we have 40 names plus the five women. So wait a minute, the math doesn't add up. And if you want to go and do further study, you'll learn that Matthew's genealogical record, the names he lists here, isn't even exhaustive. He skips people. He jumps over generations, right? Sometimes he'll list the grandfather and then list the grandson and skip the father in between. It's not exhaustive. See, Matthew's trying to prove a point. He's trying to prove that Jesus is the king. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He comes through the line of Judah, and he deserves to sit on the throne of David. He's proving that he is the son of David. So, why 14? I'm not sure. It could be, it could be that Matthew here is using a poetic device. Something that is kind of veiled for us, but to the Hebrew reader, and if you remember, right, he's writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to Hebrew readers, and I believe for the Hebrew reader, this would have jumped off the page. See, there are some things that we need to understand. The Hebrew alphabet is also their numbering system. And what I mean by that is every Hebrew letter in their alphabet had a corresponding number. So in other words, Aleph was the number one. Bet, second letter of the alphabet, number two, right? Uh, Gemel, the third letter of the alphabet, has the third number assigned to it. Um, Dilet, the fourth number, or the fourth letter is the fourth number. Va'ahi is the fifth letter, and Vav, the sixth letter, and so on and so forth, right? Each, each Hebrew letter, of the and it's the same with the Greek alphabet, right? Alpha, beta, gamma, right? They have numbers assigned to them. And so why this is significant is because if you spell the Hebrew spelling for the name David, it is Dilet, Vav, Dilet. Dilet, Vav, Dilet. David. David is how it's is. Is how it plays out, right? So it's Dilet, fourth letter of the alphabet. Vav, sixth letter of the alphabet. Dilet again, fourth letter of the alphabet. Four, six, four. My mathematicians out there is 14. So what is David saying? This would have leaped off the page for the Hebrew reader. David's numeric value of his name was 14. And what Matthew is doing is 14 generations. Right? He's pointing out that without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is 
the son of David. And I think Matthew is using here a poetic device to point out that Jesus is the son of David. Well, we are out of time. But we also have Jesus' divine heritage, right? Verses 18 through 25. You guys up for this, or do you want to cut it short? All right. I'll move quick. Jesus' divine heritage, I think it's significant, right? Because we're talking about the birth of Christ, right? His divine heritage in verses 18 through 25 involves four things, and I'll move quick. It involves the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 18 and 20. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, he was found, or, sorry, she was found with child of the, of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, But while he, being Joseph, thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, that she is conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' birth involved the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Jesus' birth involves an angel, right? Joseph, her husband, being a just man, was not wanted to make her a public example. He was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to, to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew here tells us that an angel is involved in the birth, signifying that this was a supernatural event. This is something distinct from his earthly heritage, that there is a divine heritage going on involving angels, involving the Holy Spirit, right? That God uses angels to accomplish his will. Here, he uses an angel to bring Joseph a message before he used an angel to bring Mary a message, right? Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Right? Luke 4, 10 and 11 says, For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus' divine heritage it involves the Holy Spirit. It involves angels. And I want to take a moment, real quick, to look at Joseph. You see, so much of the birth of Jesus kind of revolves around the virgin birth, right? It revolves around Mary. And, and I feel like oftentimes Joseph kind of fades off into the distance. And in terms of the scriptural writings, he does, right? Like he kind of fades off to the scene pretty early. You know, but I think there are some things that we can learn from Joseph. The first thing we learn is that he is a husband. He's a husband. Right? He is Mary's husband. And in fact, he's considered her husband before they're officially married, right? Because in, in the Jewish custom, right, that there's the three phases of a Jewish marriage was the contract, the betrothal, and then the wedding. 
right? And the contract would happen when they're very young, right? The two families would basically make an agreement and form a contract that their two kids would one day marry each other. Then they would come into the betrothal period, which is where Joseph and Mary are, right? We might consider it kind of like courting or perhaps being engaged, right? So they're not officially married, but they're kind of getting to know one another, learning about each other. In fact, during the betrothal period, if they decide they don't like each other or perhaps it's not going to work out or whatever, to break off the betrothal period, they actually had to issue a certificate of divorce. It was that serious to them. And so he was considered Mary's husband. But we also learn that he is just. It says it in our text. He is a just man. This means that Joseph is upright. It means that he tries to do what is right. And in context, it's, dealing, it's talking about how he's dealing with his wife. How he's dealing with Mary. It says that he doesn't want to openly or publicly shame her. Right? This was an embarrassment. And put it in Joseph's perspective. Right? They're betrothed. They haven't come together. Right? They haven't consummated a marriage yet. And yet she comes to him and says, hey, I'm pregnant. What is he going to think? Just from a natural human standpoint, what is he going to think? Well, it's not for me. I didn't get you pregnant, right? But he doesn't want to embarrass her. He doesn't want to publicly shame her. He wants to do what's right. You see, he loves her. He cares for her. And he wants to be just. In fact, under Jewish law, he had not only the right to divorce her, but in Deuteronomy, it gives him the right to stone her for her infidelity. Now, we know that that's not the case, right? That she is pregnant through the Holy Spirit, and there hasn't been any infidelity that's taken place. But to the outside world, it certainly looks like that. But Joseph is just, and he is also patient. He's patient. It says that he thought about these things, right? So this thing happens, and in, in the flesh, like in his mind, it's devastating, right? But instead of just going off the cuff and handling this thing on his own, I'm done with you. No, he's patient. He allows the Holy Spirit to minister to him. He's patient, and he's thinking about these things, Right? What does James 1, 19 and 20 say? So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Joseph is patient. Joseph is also spiritual. He's spiritual. This is the example that we have from Jesus' adopted father, Joseph. He's spiritual. Right, as he's being patient, as he's thinking and meditating on these things, an angel appears to him. In other words, he's in tune with spiritual things. He's listening and waiting from a word from the Lord before he just responds in the flesh. Listen, man, we are called to be spiritual. We're called to be the spiritual leaders of our home. And Joseph here is exhibiting that for us as our example. He is also obedient. 
He's also obedient. Joseph woke up and did as the angel commanded him. Jesus woke up and did what the angel commanded him. All right, guys, this is what it means to be woke, okay? It means to be obedient to the Lord. Instead of going off and divorcing her privately, he's obedient to what the angel tells him. He marries her and he calls his name Jesus. Guys, this is significant. And lastly, it's a small point, but I think it's significant. Not only is he a husband, not only is he just, patient, spiritual, obedient, he's thoughtful. Look how thoughtful Joseph is. In verse 25, it says, He did not know her until after the child was born. Consider this for a moment, okay? You're betrothed, engaged, right? And everything's leading up to that wedding day. And unlike our society and and unlike marriages that, that we experience, right? Everything builds up to that day and you kind of dedicate half your day to that wedding, right? You go and you see the ceremony. Then you celebrate with the bride and the groom during the reception, right? And the bride and groom are tapping their toes just waiting to get out of there to consummate their marriage, right? In a Jewish marriage... It lasted seven days. They celebrated for seven days the wedding ceremony. And Joseph, being thoughtful toward his new bride, chooses not to consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. I mean, guys, is that not thoughtful or what? Is that not considering and preferring his wife? Joseph, putting her needs before his own. Isn't that what we're called to do, men? To prefer our wives, to put them first, to love them, to put their needs before our own? Isn't that not what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5? Joseph is modeling that for us, and I think it's significant. Well, back to... Back to Jesus' heritage, not only does it involve the Holy Spirit, not only does it involve angels, but it involves fulfilled prophecy, right? In verses 22 and 23, it says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. In context, this is talking about Syria and Israel coming against the southern kingdom of Judah and making war against them. And Ahaz receives this prophecy, right, that God is Emmanuel. God is with us. And is that not encouraging? When it seems like the whole world is coming against us, when it seems like everything is bearing down on us, right? 2020 just won't give up. But as we celebrate this Christmas season, as we go into Friday, we go in saying, Emmanuel, God is with us. Amen? Amen. Lastly, the fourth thing that Jesus' divine heritage involves, it involves being saved from sin. 
It involves being saved from sin. Verse 25, and he did not know her till she had brought forth her first son, and he called his name Jesus. The name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. It means God saves. God saves. And I don't know about you, but I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And I need to be saved. Because our sin separates us from God. Because of our sin, right, all we need to do is call on the name of Jesus. And he will save us from our sins. Right? Acts Acts 4.12 Nor there is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why we celebrate this time of year. Because it brings salvation. That Mary, through the virgin birth, brought in salvation to mankind I'll end with this. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him, being Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no other name this morning that we should be calling There is no other name that is worthy of our worship than Jesus Christ. So as we come into Christmas this morning, let's call on the name of Jesus. Let's see him high and lifted up this Christmas. Because it is the only name that saves us from our sins. Can I get an amen? All right. Well, as we close, let's begin to prepare our hearts for communion. We're going we're gonna to sing a song together, and the elements are in the back there, and we will celebrate communion, and then we will break bread together. So let me close in prayer, and we'll sing a song. Father, we thank you. We praise you, God, for this season, Lord, for this time of year when we can, Lord, acknowledge, Lord, all the prophecy, Lord, all the things leading up to your coming. Lord, that you came into this world, Lord, you came in with humility, Lord, lowly as a babe, Lord, that you experienced every part of this life, yet you did it without sin, so that you could go to that cross, and that you could become sin for us, and God, we thank you, we praise you for that, Lord, and we want to remember you for that this morning, so as we celebrate, Lord, Not only your birth, Lord, but your death and your resurrection. God, we want to see you lifted up in this place. So we thank you. We praise you this morning. God, we love you. We thank you. God, go before us the rest of today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.